Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is your co-host Chris Gasberry. This is Frank Pelicone. And tonight we are going to bring to you the top five Shakespearean tragedy adaptations. I did not expect Frank. I think it was like three months ago mm. when I first texted you asking you, like, "Hey, in April, you want to do a Shakespeare episode?" And you were like, yeah, sure. And I did not expect it to turn into what it has, which I think has been one of our more complicated episodes, I would say. Yeah, there definitely were a lot of... Uh, it wasn't as easy to come up with this list, I don't think, as I thought it would have been at the time. Yeah, I think we've probably maybe talked about this maybe more than any other list off-air right, than, we, than, than we have so far. Um, there's been a lot of... A couple switch outs of movies um, as we went through them. Right. And a change in the title because it was brought up to me that it was originally Shakespeare adaptations and you just chose all tragedies. And it was brought up to me that, well, technically all those are tragedies and what about comedies? So I relented and changed the name to Shakespearean right. tragedy adaptations. Although in all fairness, it's my top five Shakespeare adaptations. So maybe yes. I just, I'm, I'm just not but that maybe, much into the comedies. Maybe a couple years down the road, we'll do adaptations of Shakespeare comedies. <laughs> maybe I'll be dead, <laughs> <laughs> but you're not a huge fan of comedies. Are you? Some of them I like a lot. I like a uh, taming of the shrew and I like uh, midsummer's night's dream and, um, I hate as you summer, like it. I, I know. I, I don't understand that. so I, much. I don't know what it is. I just am not a fan. Every production I've seen of it, I don't like. Yeah. I'm not a fan of reading the play. It's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I, I find it entertaining. I like yeah. the the mystical, like whimsical nature of it. Maybe that's what it is. It's not based enough on reality for you yeah. to actually appreciate it. That might be. That might be right. Yeah, I like things that take place in the real world much more than. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I really enjoy it. So. Um, so we've had a couple switch outs. We'll probably still briefly, I think, talk about the alternate versions that you end sure. up switching things out for, uh, in a couple of your picks. So you actually, you, even though we're both local here and grew up locally, you had a much better high school education than I did in terms of Shakespeare. You had a much better education than I did <laughs> at the high school I went to, um, overall but you read tons of stuff tons of shakespeare in uh high school right yeah um most of the tragedies we read in high school and we read um taming of the shrew and some of midsummers in high school um othello macbeth romeo and juliet um parts of lear parts of hamlet um we had to act out a few of them too. Like mm. we actually in my ninth grade class, we had to do a full production of Romeo and Juliet. Um, and then we did the majority of Othello in my AP English class, hmm. like actually like learning the parts and having to do it in class. Yeah. I, I only read Romeo and Juliet in ninth grade. And then I think Hamlet in 11th. It's funny that like, that was it. Cause you know, my, my son is in, is a senior in high school now. Um, and he's the same. Like, I think that they've kind of reversed Elkton and Northeast, um, where they read Romeo and Juliet in middle school, I think. And then they read Hamlet. Like now they're doing Hamlet. Yeah. Um, I find Hamlet to be a really weird one to foist on high school kids. Cause it's so long and so complex. Like there's so much in Hamlet. Like 
I feel like Othello and Macbeth, if you're going to make someone read a Shakespearean tragedy after Romeo and Juliet are probably the two better because they're more uh, Othello, definitely more self-contained, I think, and shorter than Hamlet, which is like friggin' a million years long. Yeah. I have a, I have a feeling that people would object to Othello just because of some of the content. Maybe. Um, in high school, so I don't know. I, I, I don't teach high school, but and I haven't really talked to high school teachers about it. But I, I'd be interested to know and whether they would get any flack about teaching Othello. Possibly, yeah, it's possible. So most, but I mean, like you're. I I know you are. I mean, you're more well read in Shakespeare. Beyond that, like you've read a lot of the almost all the major plays. I think. I think right? so. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I I find that like I'm always reading about a Shakespeare play that I had no idea existed. So I there's don't, a lot of them, yeah. Um, and also like whatever they call them, the Ur plays that are like the protogenesis for like the main plays. So and I yeah. don't know any of that stuff, but right. aside from like having a knowledge that it exists, yeah. but yeah, like the major works, yeah. like I'm pretty familiar with. Yeah, I yeah in college I was actually able to ex. I was trying to escape the Shakespeare class in my undergrad because of that time I was not able to sit down and I've never been able to perform in the sense of actually delivering lines of dialogue in front of people. Like I can get in front of the classroom, I can talk, I can do those kind of things, but I cannot perform in any kind of traditional sense of acting. So I avoided Shakespeare like the plague. Right. And they, I waited until I think it was my last year that, they ended up offering an alternative class that would take one of your core classes, but Shakespeare was a core class away. And I was able to avoid Shakespeare by taking a class called text and time. And you probably remember this. I remember, yeah. you remember And we did like <coughs> 1940s Los Angeles mm-hmm. novels and films. And what was it like sixties Montreal? Cause we did Leonard Cohen and those kind of things. So I've actually until grad school, where grad school, they didn't care if you um, acted or anything like that. Right, they're not going to make you get up. And right, they're not going to make you get up and perform. So I actually somehow avoided Shakespeare until grad school. Yeah, um, which is I'm pretty proud of actually for being an English major. That's interesting. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I I I I have a lot of respect for people that can do Shakespeare because I've tried to do it just in my own mind or just sitting, sitting on a couch board, like, you know, reading something and then trying to see how it would be acted out in my head and like, kind of like seeing how that would work. And I, I don't, I'm always very impressed when people do Shakespeare. Well, Shakespeare's really, it's, it's interesting. And like one of, so we, we can talk about this now cause this is the number five movie anyway, but sure. Well, let me go ahead and introduce it. So, um, if we're going to talk about it, so well, I, I want to talk about like another, like oh. just to your point, like, okay. um, you look like the Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet. Okay. And the way that um, there's there's a couple of scenes between Benvolio and Romeo where they're talking. Mm-hmm. And um, DiCaprio particularly, like, I don't necessarily get the feeling that DiCaprio fully understands what he's saying. Like, he knows the lines, but the way he delivers them, I feel, is, like, flat. And I think that's the really difficult thing with Shakespeare is, like... If you're reading something in plain English, like, you understand the import of the dialogue just naturally from, like, reading it and knowing the context. But with Shakespeare, because it's so intricate, you know, and, like, 
the insults and the subtext and everything that's like woven into his dialogue. I mean, you, you really have to, you almost have to be an expert in the play itself to really be able to deliver that dialogue. Yes. And I think that's, I think that's incredibly difficult. And that's honestly what makes like these five movies in a lot of ways, really impressive to me. So, yeah. Um, so let's go ahead and jump in because I, one of both of our concerns, I think is that there's so much, I think depth to the movies and then there has to probably be a little bit of discussion of the play sometime right. because it's an adaptation. We're both worried. I think that this could turn into like a five or six hour yeah, podcast. It could be very if we long. didn't constrain ourselves. So we're going to try to keep it going as much as possible <laughs> right. um, and cut each other off when we need to. Cause we, I think we both have pitfalls in this topic probably. It's so um, number five on your list is, the 1968 version by Franco Zeffirelli of Romeo and Juliet, uh, starring Leonard Whiting, Olivia Hussey, Milo O'Shea, and Michael York. It has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, a 74% from audiences. Uh, did you want to go ahead? I, I don't know. Do you want to just kind of skip the what these plays are about? Because I think everybody knows most of the yeah, time. Yeah, I don't think we need to summarize. Right. So, what is it that you like about this version, particularly of Romeo and Juliet? So, um, so in in watching this version, I'm really impressed with Zeffirelli's ability to make it really feel like you're watching like whatever 15th century Verona or wherever you know mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. takes place. <clears throat> um, I love the. I think he's really good with like subtle camera movement in terms of setting the stage. Um, the costuming is amazing. Like everybody looks, it all looks and feels really authentic. Um, in watching this again, I realized that I'm not that big of a fan of Romeo and Juliet as a play. Mm-hmm. Like I like, I like it considerably until the large fight um, between Tybalt and Mercutio, where Mercutio ends up dying because of Romeo's interference. Mm-hmm. And then I just kind of feel like it gets, like, it's really stupid after that. Like, it's, you know, so... Well, to define, what about it is stupid? Okay, so, number one, I don't consider it that great of a love story. Um, I think Zeffirelli does a really good job of, you know, using um, Whiting and Hussey. And they're, number one, they're both incredibly attractive, like, young people. <clears throat> and just the way he films them of, like, showing that, like, burgeoning young, like, lust in a time where like lust wasn't necessarily acceptable like lust had to come with marriage so it's them like sort of declaring love because declaring love and getting married is what's going to let them sleep together without like the societal repercussions um really well filmed you know there's some really beautiful scenes um early on like the I, I particularly, even though I think it's maybe a little too long, I particularly love the Capulet party scene, um, mostly because of they have the guy that's like singing the um, the theme to Romeo and Juliet, basically. Um, and it's really well done, you know, and the costuming is really good and the way it moves. And, um, you know, York's portrayal of Tybalt is like this fiery, like he won't be denied trying to go and challenge Romeo to like throw him out, this you know, this villain or whatever. Um so it's it's believable to that point. But then I I find that like Mercutio dies, Romeo is incensed, kills Tybalt 
like almost by accident. And I love the way that Michael York portrays Tybalt being conflicted and almost like sad and crestfallen that he's killed Mercutio because, and I had read that like, it's one of the first time it's the first time on screen that someone portrays Tybalt in that manner as being like, like unwittingly killing Mercutio that he was never even trying to kill him. And I love the, the way that both of those actors, like the back and forth and the banter between them during the fight. And it's almost like they're playing a game. They're just, you know, it's hot and they're getting their aggressions out. And it's, it's, it's Romeo being an idiot because Romeo is the stupidest dude, like on the planet, like that causes his best friend to die. And then he kills, you know, his new wife's cousin. Again, just like, he's not even like a good swordsman. He just accidentally kills Tybalt. And then he goes and he has sex with Juliet and like, just leave you idiots. Like, just go like, you're already banished. You don't need to have this big convoluted, like death stratagem where you're pretending to die so you can run away just run the fuck away like highly hence to friar lawrence's cell and get the fuck out of verona you know like right. it's just dumb and everything that happens is because romeo is an idiot and i think that whiting does a good job of portraying romeo as this not like he's very very poetic and very flowery and very almost like I don't know, like ephemeral in his thoughts, but he's not grounded. Like he doesn't really understand the like complexities of life at all. He just is kind of wandering around picking flowers and hiding from people. But like, he's in love with, with Rosaline like early on. And then all of a sudden he's not because he sees Juliet and then he's in love with Juliet. And I don't know, like, I guess maybe that's kind of romantic, but to me it just seems dumb and it's, um, but what I like about the movie <laughs> <clears throat> um actually let me... I was I was actually not expecting the level I know you felt that way and I still wasn't expecting the level of vitriol that you just had as you were describing all of that it, it, it shocked me just a little bit I I think part of it is that when I was a kid and Romeo and Juliet is I imagine the first first Shakespeare that I read definitely the first Shakespearean thing I saw because I'm pretty sure I saw this movie with my mom when I was like 12 or 13 maybe because she loves this movie um i really like i found it really romantic when i was a kid like to me that it was the you know it was this incredibly romantic thing with these two people giving up their lives because their families won't let them be together but as you get older you're just kind of like all right dummies like there's no need for that i don't know the one thing that i really but i mean isn't that like the thing though is like it's really though that it's about what it's like to be young and be in love or think you're in love and that kind of haste that comes with decision making right. and well, or the lack of decision making maybe it's like the chestnut you know the tragic the true tragedy of youth is that it's wasted on the young you know yeah. what i mean like you don't have any sense but you have like all this yeah. energy and passion and like vigor and right. you waste it by fucking drinking poison in a goddamn church i don't know just right. Okay, so what do you like about this this adaptation? I love I love the setting. I love mm-hmm. the way he films it. I think the fight scenes are really well done. Like they feel chaotic, and the deaths feel earned. Um, these are two of my favorite portrayals of Tybalt and Mercutio in any movie. Um, one of the other movie that would have taken that would have been in the spot and was originally in the spot is the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet, and mostly because of um, well that's. 
just a quick correction. Actually, Zeffirelli was originally in this spot. Oh, and then we talked about it, and right. we marked out to um, Harold Perrineau's Harold Perrineau's Mercutio and uh, Leguizamo's Tybalt. Yes, and convinced ourselves that that was a that was a good movie. And it got replaced, yeah, and then, and we, then both we both watched, watched it. it, and then it came went back as up around. And we realized right. the error of our ways. Um, <clears throat> so originally, like the I I love those two performances, the Leguizamo and um, Piranu. But York and McLean is that his name that mm-hmm. plays Mercutio? Um, amazing reads on those characters. Like I love, I love the the banter between the two of them. I love the way that McLean plays Mercutio as this almost world weary, sardonic. Like my read of Mercutio as a kid was, he was like a jester almost like he's a guy who he's a talented swordsman and whatnot. And like everyone looks up to him, but he's just kind of like, he's the class clown of like that group. And that's why Romeo likes him and you know why he like hangs around. And that's why, you know, because in the play, like he's, he's okay with everybody. Like he's, you know, he's invited to the Capulet's ball. He's friends with Paris. He's friends with the Prince. I think he's related to the Prince, right? Or something Mm -hmm. like that in the play. I think there's something where he's like a cousin or something of royalty. Um, but I just, I I love McLean's interpretation of him as being this guy that like, it's McHenry. I just looked it up. Oh, McHenry. Sorry. That, for all of his ability to be quick-witted and, like, cut a joke at someone else's expense, mm-hmm. he really is just, like, he's kind of tired of life. Like, he really is just, he, as, mu- as much as Tybalt, just not his bald face, like, he's just spoiling for a fight, like, constantly. You know, he's not trying to break up the brawl. He wants to be in the brawl. And he's disappointed that Romeo isn't man enough to brawl himself. Like, mm-hmm. that he has to stand in and be his, you know basically his proxy or whatever because Romeo's so I don't know like I don't even know what you would call Romeo so romantic that he can't like I mean and Romeo has reason because Tybalt is now his kinsman so he can't fight him but I don't know like I really love that I I love the performance of the nurse I think it's maybe my favorite Mm -hmm. screen performance Mm -hmm. of the nurse Mm -hmm. in any adaptation um I really like the way that every character, every actor feels like they know what that dialogue is meant to convey in that moment. Even like, like I really like Benvolio, you know, like I'm mm-hmm. not, I don't think Benvolio is like necessarily a great character. He mostly is just like, almost like the chorus, like moving the business along in any given scene, like kind of explaining to you, like, this is why this matters or this is why we're doing this or whatever but i i like the the kid that plays benvolio a lot <clears throat> um the one thing that kind of annoys me about it and you know I, I guess you can kind of talk to this a little more because you researched it a lot more like i i don't understand certain parts of dialogue that they cut out like i think it lessens the impact of certain scenes and in particular i think shortening the balcony scene um mm-hmm. especially taking out the you know it is East and Juliet is the sun, like a rise for sun, you know, all that stuff. Like you'd like remove this really like iconic bit of dialogue from the scene. And I don't think it adds anything or does anything to benefit the movie to remove that. And I know that, you know, it's because they were young actors or whatever. Sure. I'm so, (coughs) 
Penelope Houston of The Spectator in a contemporaneous review in 1968 kind of brings that up about this, and it's what caused me to start reading into it a little bit more. But um, her criticism <clears throat> was that the question of whether any 16-year-old can begin to play Juliet rather depends on how much of Juliet she is given to play. Zeffirelli's version deprives her of the portion of the potion speech, that fearful sticking point at the center of the part, as it robs Romeo of his visit to the Apocryphe and his final encounter with Paris and a Juliet who knocks back a potion on a single line of dialogue as though taking a quick swig of an after-hours coca is uh, not, to my mind, entirely what Juliet should be. Zeffirelli's decision to stake it all on youth in the frail, in the frail and blameless persons of Whitting and Hussey has its corollary. This cannot simply be a very young Romeo and Juliet is it is bound rather more timely to come across as a 1960s teenage version which conveys suggestions altogether remoter from Shakespeare than casting a crone of 30 or so so yes what Zeffirelli did was that he wanted to cast young as the play called for as opposed to casting what was typical a lot of times of trying to cast late 20s 30s right. that look young but still can't pull it off. So his compromise is that 16-year-old, like, you know, young people, that people that young cannot handle the heavy soliloquies and dialogue that came with it. So he and the writer went ahead and just cut portions that were just too heavy. Yeah. And what we have in this version is, a, like, from a dialogue standpoint speech standpoint is a cut down version to try to allow these young actors to still be able to get to the core of what is going on in this story and these characters and yes we end up losing some of those that's memorable though, lines and stuff because i think that hussey does a really good job with what she's given um but i i think maybe it's possible that she does a good job because because that's all she was given maybe but i mean i really like that performance mm -hmm. of juliet I, I i prefer her performance far to um claire danes oh claire danes is not good like there's times there's there's it's right. like where you said that you didn't think dicaprio at all understood what he was saying i think claire danes stood understood 25 percent of what she was saying like there's scenes where she does really well and then there are scenes I, where i think she's awful i also really think that that has to do with her chemistry with dicaprio like i don't think that they mm, sure <clears throat> um necessarily i don't know it, it's very stilted and also against that modern backdrop like the way yeah. that lerman films it it just sure. i don't know it, it just comes off as like creaky sometimes like the way that he films dialogue um but i like hussey a lot i think she does a really good job absolutely yeah. um I think both. I I think yeah, both White, of them overall Whiting are good. does a good job as yeah. well. But again, like York's Tybalt and um, McHenry's Mercutio are just amazing. Like, and Tybalt yeah. and Mercutio are my favorite parts of Romeo and Juliet. Anyway, sure. yeah. um, you know, for being secondary characters, I think they, you know, the Queen Mab speech is one of the greatest like soliloquies in my opinion in mm -hmm. all of Shakespeare. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and I think the Pyrenu actually like takes some almost like pays homage to McHenry's delivery of Queen Mab because before I had seen, I never really considered that it, it is kind of like an angry speech on his part, like mm -hmm. about, you know, the, the ephemeral nature of dreams or whatever. Um, it always seemed like lighthearted again. Like, so I always sort of looked at Mercutio as being 
like a clown kind of, but mm-hmm. I really like the fact that there is that weight, you know, that he isn't necessarily right. happy with life or the way things are. And it's just, um, it's funny cause you know, when, when, when he dies, like again, one of the more famous, you know, like, what does it come for me tomorrow? You'll find me a grave man. Like one right. great sure. mm-hmm. line of dialogue, yeah. um, as he's dying, <clears throat> but just the way he delivers it, like moving back and forth between the realization that his life is ending and still trying to be that like sardonic, like clown. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's really well done. Yeah. And it's a beautiful movie. The cinematography is fantastic. It feels hot and it feels dusty and it feels like ancient in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I, um, I, if, I think the direction is the cinematography is fantastic. I think the direction itself is mediocre at best. Yeah. Probably, yeah. I, I, actually, I don't. I I think he's pretty brilliant when he's filming yeah. the balcony scene and moving the. Camera I'm not saying there's not good scenes. I, I I really like the 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 ball scene, like you know, yeah. like the the party scene. Like I really like a lot the way he films. Really well done. But I I think there's a lot of things that he films that's just very. The sword fights are really good too. Like that sword fight between Tybalt and Mercutio is fantastic. That's good. I don't know. It's there. There's certain things that I just don't like that he does. It's not even that I don't like it. It's just bland. I think at times. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's and utilitarian. It, and it and it comes in the second half of the play. So I wonder again because I kind of am agreeing with you. I think the second half of the play after Mercutio dies, I think the second half of that play kind of dips in terms of my interest level. And it well, could just the two be most interesting characters in the player fucking dead. <laughs> so it could be that my, my, my feeling blandness, I could be imposing on his direction, yeah. but I do think something is lost after that point, even in the direction, but it, yeah. So. And so it's a classic of mid-century cinema. And I think it's something that's like, if you know, Romeo and Juliet, it's it, to my opinion, it's the definitive version to watch. Yeah. No, I have to agree. Uh, the nineteen ninety six Boz Lerman one that we also ended up watching as a possibility. After watching it again, I, I'm I was actually embarrassed at times watching it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it doesn't hold. I up really much. think the only thing that really stands out of that is Harold Perrin, who is Mercutio, right? Who I really love the way he interprets that character. I also think he's the only, one of the few that understands how to deliver that dialogue. Lucozamo's Tybalt is still good, not as good as quite quite remember it being, but still good uh, in it. Yeah, uh, Pete Postlethwaite. Yeah, he actually, is good in it as Fire, uh, Fire Lawrence. That's the best delivery of the dialogue in the yeah. whole. <clears throat> yes, the whole movie. Mm-hmm. The one thing I really like about the Lerman version, and it's a very small thing is using the idea of newscasts mm-hmm. to set the stage and be like the exposition. Um, I really like, I, I like the, in Fair Verona where we set our stage, like, you know, the sure. over like almost like a CNN style. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> and it has a really great soundtrack. Um, yeah. It do- no, it does. Yeah. It's a good 90 soundtrack. Yeah. I agree. Okay. Let's go ahead and move on to number four on your list, which is, the 1971 Roman Polanski version of Macbeth, starring John Finch, Francesca Annas, and Martin Shaw. It is an 86% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 72% from audiences. Did you want to go ahead and let us know what are the main things that you like about this version as opposed to others? Um, so I always like 
the readings of Macbeth where Macbeth isn't removed from any culpability for what he does. Mm-hmm. Like, I like the idea that it's, despite the fact of this, like, you know, the supernatural, I don't know, sort of like egging on of the witches and Lady Macbeth's like kind of needling. Ultimately, Macbeth is responsible for his own actions. Sure. <clears throat> you know, he's the one that, you know, murders Duncan. He's the one that has um, Banquo murdered. Like, he, he's driving the action the entire time. And it's driven through his greed and his inability to accept fate, basically. Um, and I think that Polanski, you know, does a really good job of showing it as just a really dark depressing play um again in in the same way that i really appreciate the way that zeffirelli films verona and makes it feel like you really are looking at like a medieval city i feel the same way about the way the polanski films scotland where it feels authentic you know Mm -hmm. like the castles aren't lavish and luxurious i mean they're dirty and there's mud all over the place and there's actually um yes they seem they feel very practical for what they're made for to some degree which is to live in and be a defense and and, yeah to defend yourself against like whatever outside forces um i love polanski's interpretation of the witches almost in the same sense of like the greek fates Mm -hmm. um with like the old blind one and then like the young like more attractive one and the one that's kind of in the middle that can see but is also you know like withered in a way um and them is like a coven almost towards the end like Mm -hmm. when he goes back when it's the um the double 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 toil and trouble scene um you know where until burnham wood marches against the castle and until like you can't be slew by man of woman born Mm -hmm. um I think that there's some amazing, like, wide photography of landscapes that kind of sort of portray, like, this desolate, you know, the desolate highlands of Scotland. And there's one scene in particular um, when, I'm trying to remember what the exact circumstances, I think, I think someone is riding back to Macbeth. To let him know that um, it's after they've him and Banquo have experienced the witches for the first time, and they basically call him the um, what is it? The Lord of he's the Thane of Glamis and the Thane Cal- of Caldor. Yeah, Caldor. Yeah, yeah. And they show the rider like silhouetted against the setting sun with like the mountains, and it's just one of the most beautiful fucking shots. Where it's just like this perfect, like the oranges and like the deep purples and then the black of the rider. But it's like so distinct, like you can see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I like a lot of Polanski's stylistic choices, um, especially in terms of the, is this a dagger I see before me? You know, um, scene where he portrays the dagger as almost this phantom thing. Like not only like a practical thing that's in Macbeth's hand. But also a phantom thing that's like dragging him along. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, that that does, that plays really well into my interpretation of it, which is this is something that's solely in Macbeth's mind. Like there's no external force that's causing him to do this. And it like rests, you know, the 
the blame, the culpability solely on his shoulders, which is where I think it, it needs to be. Um, there's it. So like for historical context, you know, this is a couple of years after Roman Polanski's wife was murdered by the Manson family in the Tate Lobianca murders. Um, and there's the scene where Macduff's family is murdered at Macbeth's behest where <clears throat> Polanski has basically Manson stand in. So it's these guys with wild hair and dirty beards coming into this house and murdering this family. And it's, it doesn't shy away from the graphic nature of violence. Like where most Shakespeare adaptations will sort of cut away from a, you know, blood or sure. they won't like really show it. Like Polanski almost revels in it. And it's a really dark read on his part that I think like you have to, feel is influenced given the context of the murders not too, too many years beforehand it's a hard scene to watch yeah it's it just the, the whole home invasion feel yeah. of it mm-hmm. um it's just really especially because it's almost idyllic before them because um lady Macduff is bathing her son and they're sort of talking about one's father coming home and then you know you hear the screams and then these men are there and there's no hope and it doesn't shy away from showing them get murdered and it's um it's really difficult to watch, but it's really powerful at the same time. And I also like the fact that at the end, it sort of just goes to the... the we, you and I talked about, about this the other day, like, off-air, but the cyclical nature of, like, power and people trying to maintain power in the sense that Malcolm, in the last scene, is going to seek the witches for their counsel to try and find some way to sort of, like, defeat the prophecy that you know, Banquo's heirs are going to be the ones to sit on the throne because he's the natural successor after Macbeth. Which is added by Polanski. Yeah. That that, that right. does not exist in the original play. But I love those. I, I, I always love those, like, minor interpretations by a director. Yeah. Especially one that... Because you really feel the way that Polanski films it, that he understands Macbeth really well as, like, a story. Yeah. Um... I think he does. I mean, I yeah, I, I think he does. And let me make the case quickly for why that ending, I think, even though it's added, is close, at least thematically, to the correct ending of... The correct reading of the end of Macbeth is that historically critics and scholars have looked at the Malcolm character as a good guy. He is the savior that is returning from exile in England to come back and take over and and install himself and everything is going to be great after that and they've seen it psychologically because the crazy thing is everything that we're going to talk about besides Romeo and Juliet is written between 1600 and 1606 so in six years he writes four of the you know greatest tragedies of all time sure and during that time, they're all dark tragedies that we're going to be talking about here, really. And they, critics and scholars see Macbeth as the play of where evil in the form of Macbeth is defeated and goodness and rises and is installed in its place in Malcolm. But when you read a lot of the subtext, at least to me, of the Malcolm character, they put him in, Shakespeare puts him in shadows a lot. Um, he double speaks, uh, what was, uh, call what was big at the time is the idea of equivocation, speaking equivocally, yeah. um, that anybody who s- spoke equivocally out of like both sides of their mouth in the common parlance 
was someone who to be distrusted and was considered evil hmm. and it was tied into the idea of witchcraft and hmm. Malcolm does that a lot in the play and I it always seemed to me that the idea that Malcolm being installed while yes maybe better than Macbeth isn't the idea should be are you sure he's better than Macbeth right and is the idea going to be that really this is all one long cycle of bloody violence that'll continue to manifest itself generation after generation and I think most plays end with celebrating Macduff and his victory and the installation of Malcolm and I've always thought that, that was a far too optimistic reading of that right. play and then psychologically because he's writing these dark tragedies people see it as Shakespeare coming out of his kind of depression his darkness with Macbeth where to me it just feels like a continuation of other yeah. things such as um Hamlet and uh, Othello and King Lear uh, and this is the last out of those four. That's well, This is the last one written. And I think that it's a continuation of, of what's set up in a lot of those stories, which is the idea of right. what can you know and what can you not know. And I think that Polanski, in this ending, Malcolm is still wrestling with the idea of the unknown. Well, Polanski, There's a prophecy, and I want to know how that prophecy is going to play out so I can beat right. it somehow. Polanski never... <clears throat> I mean, he doesn't paint Malcolm as a villain, but he also doesn't paint Malcolm as a hero. I mean, right. your big your big scene prior to the end with Malcolm is... Who's the other brother? What is his name? Starts with a B. Right, I can't remember it. Yeah. It, it's them basically saying, like, look, we're going to get blamed for this shit. Like, we need to flee. And I'm going to Ireland and you go to England. And it's like, he's not a returning hero. He's just a guy that ran away. And is using... Like, basically, the other Thanes, like, sort of turning on Macbeth as his way of getting back in to sort of, you know, take advantage of it. Um, I think no, the scene... Donald Bane. Donald Bane. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I can never remember who Donald Bane is in yeah. that play. Um, I think the scene with Banquo's death is really powerful. Um, I think even though, like, obviously, like, I know what's going to happen, you know, you do feel like a a tenseness for Fleance, like, being able to get away. Um, I love the end fight scene between... I mean, he almost makes Macbeth, like, a superhero. Like, an invincible, like, mm -hmm. god, almost. Like, just knocking down... Like, he's an action hero at the end of that movie. Like, just basically defeating an entire troop of, like, soldiers. <clears throat> and they're, like, just as afraid of him because they know the prophecy, too. Like, they know that he can't be killed. Um really gruesome ending like cutting off his head and then like impaling it on the, the sword with them spitting on it like that's a really powerful scene i think it's just for as as uncomfortable as polanski is to talk about like in the modern age as a figure you know as a director like he's an incredibly powerful and masterful sure you know just like i mean he's maybe one of the best directors well not even maybe he's one of the best directors of the 20th century and, like, the power of his use of, like, just color and shot composition. I mean, it's just, it's it's an amazing movie, and it, it looks beautiful, and it's, in my opinion, my favorite telling of Macbeth, like, on the screen, I think. Yeah. 
I, Although I, I really th- want to see the um, what's his name? Uh, the one from a couple of years ago with uh, Michael Fassbender. Yeah, as Macbeth. I've I've heard that's really good. Yeah, so I haven't seen that yet. I might actually watch that tomorrow. Uh, I think that John <laughs> Finch's playing Macbeth is really solid as well, mm. and there's a lot of ways you could do the Macbeth character to give him to 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 make him a little bit more sympathetic and i think both polanski refuses to do so and right. make him sympathetic and i think finch doesn't allow you to have much sympathy for him i mean the most sympathy you can have for him is the fact that he's a human being who right but he's like he's he's craven sure and he's greedy and he's sure. grasping right and, and the, the only time i ever have because I don't have, even reading the play, I never had any sympathy for Macbeth. But the only time I oddly have even a, a modicum of sympathy for Macbeth is... And it, it kind of makes me laugh because it's just so cruel and callous. Is she should have died hereafter. Mm. Is, is upon seeing his dead wife, that's the response. And the way Finch almost under-delivers the line with just a complete uncaring deadpan it's i almost feel a modicum of sympathy because he's that far gone right and of course that's when he goes into the nihilistic tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech which again where a lot of plays set it up as this is nihilism is evil and this is most people read it as shakespeare setting up the evil macbeth reading the is 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 a nihilist and that is part of his evil and that Malcolm coming in and Macbeth being defeated is a rejection of nihilism where I think the Polanski version leaves it much more up in the air of maybe that's really is all it is, is just a way to dusty death. And I think the fact that Polanski leaves it open for you at the end as a viewer is really disturbing and it makes it a really uncomfortable movie by the end because you're not there is no catharsis right given and you're left with the idea of maybe that is right and it's it's really uncomfortable but i think it's also really brave at the same time yeah. that he does that it's also really sad from Blansky's perspective absolutely like absolutely where, where he was at this point in his sure life, so. sure yeah um at originally you also had Wells um, as Macbeth. Wells as Macbeth mm-hmm. that that and we both watched that. And I'm so glad that you changed this <laughs> because I haven't and I love Orson Wells. Yeah. Absolutely adore Orson Wells. I love Kane, the third man is probably my favorite movie. Uh, I love Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil, Lady in Shanghai. Like I mean, I right. I love a lot of his performances. Optimus Prime voice work. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. there's so much I love about Wells. You know, Touch of Evil. Like I, God, I disliked this that movie. Yeah, I don't and know I dis- why you I disliked, disliked his so performance. Much. I thought okay, so. It's 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 a hammy performance. I mean, Wells is always. Wells looks like like a bulldog, like whenever he's like playing any Shakespearean character, where it's just, you know, what it reminds me of. It's um, 
and gets shorty when uh john travolta says you're gonna play a shylock and danny devito makes this face where it's just like this huge like deep frown and he's like oh i'm sorry i was playing shylock not a shylock (laughs) (laughs) like that's that's, it's one of my favorite things in that movie yeah that's the face that wells has like as Macbeth throughout the entirety of that movie but i love the impressionistic nature of it i think it's like i i i just i don't know it's i i like it yeah, I, I it's had so many things. Like, I, I made a list as I was watching it, like, of, like, five different things that, why is this happening? Why did they do this? Like, right. I was just so turned off by Good everything in that movie. It, I yeah, I, it would have, it wouldn't have been as bad as Excalibur, but it would have been close <laughs> um, of me just going through and completely mm. just ripping apart that Yeah, movie. I actually forgot about the Plansky one until I was sitting there like I was watching the Wells one and I was like, you know, like what about that Polanski one? Like I, I really liked that movie. And then yeah, I, I looked, I, I looked up some like Google image search pictures of it. I was like, Oh yeah, that movie's fucking great. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when I changed my mind. I, yeah, I was talking to a colleague at work about Shakespeare adaptations and she was like, she, she liked the Wells version, but she, um, she was talking to me about uh, the plant. I was like, I don't know why I didn't choose the Plansky version. And she was like, oh, yeah. Like, that's that's that, that might be the right choice. No, so, there you go. Uh, so here, here's what Variety says about this Plansky okay. version. So it says, Macbeth receives a most handsome treatment from Roman Polanski who adapted this production for the entry of Playboy Enterprises into feature filmmaking. Rugged in its telling, raw in its motivated violence, and rich in its appropriate physical trappings, this is the 16th known version of the story. The players are very good, though John Finch's Macbeth is a serious weakness. Hmm. Does Polanski's Macbeth work? Not especially, but it's an admirable try. The film is traditional in the sense that there are no forced sociological overtones, no Freudianisms, and no pop art formula epic production numbers. Atmospherically, it is a heavy trip through a time machine. The prominent surrounding characters have been cast and directed with the same care. In such heady surroundings, Honest is as Lady Macbeth often pales in impact, and Finch as Macbeth completely fades in effectiveness both seem almost to be of another time and place she closer to sherwood forest and pampered gentility he almost a 20th century drawing room psychotic see so i like i agree with that and i think that's a good read of macbeth and i think it's good that you i mean i was reading about how some adaptations like make lady macbeth almost one of the witches like she's like has a supernatural control over him. And I like the fact that you remove, I mean, she's greedy too. And, but she's just looking out for what she feels is best for him. And he's the one that, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess I understand that review, but I think it's a bad read of the movie. And I, I think the Finch's performance is actually pretty fantastic as, as Macbeth. Yeah, no, I, I do too. I, I, I'm not saying that every scene is fantastic that he does right, I mean, the way whatever. he portrays it, but I think he hits most of the notes yeah, in Macbeth yeah, yeah. pretty well. So, um, okay. Any final thoughts on this? No, I mean, you know, if you can get past like 
the creepiness of Roman Polanski. Um, I think it's definitely worth seeing. I, I think it's it's an incredibly beautiful movie, and it, it really is well done. And yeah, oh, just so, so many great scenes in that movie. It's 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 really good. The the blasted Heath stuff is just fantastic, in in my opinion, like with the witches and whatnot. Yes. So. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I have so many things I want to talk shit on about that Wells version. And you said the witches, and I was like, oh my god. Um, <clears throat> so, like, racist. Is, right, they're voodoo priests. Yeah, yes, yeah, like, yeah. I, I don't want to get into it. So, yeah. let's move on to number three. Um, we have a lot of positive things to say about this. <laughs> so, number three is 1996 Hamlet, which is uh, directed by Kenneth Branagh, starring Kenneth Branagh as Hamlet, Kate Winslet as Ophelia, Derek Jacoby as Claudius, uh, Julia Christie is his mother. Uh, it has a 95% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 89% from audiences, which I think is astounding for a four-hour movie. Four hours and two minutes. <clears throat> and I want to commend myself in that I watched this in two sittings. I'm very proud of you. Yeah. Go ahead. So, what do you um, like about this so much? I mean, I know that you like this a lot, so... Right. It, it's... I mean, it's the truest sense of the word, like an epic production of <clears throat> an incredibly complex, not only plot-wise, but, you know, ideological play. Um, maybe Shakespeare's most complex work in terms of, like, the themes and just the the way that it can be interpreted. Um, Branagh, I think, understands the language of Shakespeare better than anyone else that I've ever seen try to adapt Shakespeare. Not only in the sense of like the broad strokes of what's occurring in a scene, but also the nuance of how that scene is portrayed. And there's so many things that I saw this movie in the theater. It was very difficult watching the theater. I'll be honest. Like it was, it was tough. Um, yeah, but, intermission at least. Yeah. Well, whatever. <laughs> um, but it blew me away. Um, I don't know that I ever really understood Hamlet up until the when I saw it. Um, I think that Branagh has a grasp of Hamlet's psychology throughout this play in a way that I've never seen anyone else grasp it. And I think it's such a brilliant read on Hamlet as a character. Um the way that Elsinore is filmed, you know, with like natural light and just there's so many shots inside that castle that are just gorgeous. And there's tracking shots that are so perfect and seamless that like you almost forget that you're watching a movie. Like it feels very yes. voyeuristic without yes. being like fourth wall breaking i don't i don't know if that makes any sense it does but um, i mean he, he goes back and forth i think between very classical filmmaking and almost at times some elements of like cinema verite right exactly yeah. like back and forth depending on what the scene needs because like when he's first introduced i can't think of any more classical shot of when claudius is talking and is basically installed king and that camera just pans to the right to introduce hamlet right standing there with his head bent down dressed all in black like behind the stage so classically filmed but like what you're talking about some of these tracking shots like yeah, just brilliant yeah 
Um, I like that Branagh is not afraid to to get like impressionistic at times. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, and th- this is a point of contention between the two of us, I think mm-hmm. slightly, slightly. Um, when when Hamlet goes with Horatio and um the other guardsmen uh, out into the wood, um, you know, to track the the ghost, the spirit that he he believes is his father, it becomes like. almost like un it's it's supernatural like the ground cracks and there's like the flashes in the sky it's just and i think that it's it's a really interesting visual identifier that all this shit might just be in hamlet's head that maybe it's not really happening because it changes like the entire visual like thread of the movie up to that point and that doesn't you know like then it goes back to just being like a normal realistically filmed movie but i like i i love that kind of stuff and i love that branagh is so that he loves the source material so much that he's willing to take those risks to show it as his own personal interpretation of like what's actually happening Mm -hmm. um i also you know as as a performer like i don't know that really anyone understands or delivers shakespeare as well as branagh does in the way that he his facial expressions his mannerisms the way that he knows how to say the dialogue in such a way that even though you're listening to this ridiculous old english like it's completely understandable what's being said Mm -hmm. and a lot of actors fall short of that i think sure the other guy in this movie um that does it perfectly is uh polonius richard Breyer is fucking amazing like when he's talking to Laterus, is that right? Is that his son's name? Laertes. Laertes. Like, early in the movie when he's basically setting up, like, I want you to go and, like, talk shit on Hamlet and, you know, we're gonna find out, like, what's what's really going on with him. And they have the prostitute there. Polonius's delivery of that dialogue is just... Like, I was astounded by somebody, like, saying... Because it's a really complex bit of dialogue that he goes on and it's very like verbally involved in the sense of like the repetition of like sounds and stuff and i know that that's all part of like shakespeare anyway but just the way he says it almost is like he's just talking you know and it just comes out so beautifully and you completely understand like what's being said um i love the costuming in it i think that you know setting it in like the more modern like you know dutch era where they have like i mean like when when do you think it takes place like late 1800s maybe i don't know if they ever really say but yeah they don't but it, I, I mean there's newspapers and stuff so it's obviously sure. like post right. you know probably post-industrial revolution mm-hmm. um and the fact that um they use like the 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 Fortinbras stuff in the play and it's been a really long time since i've read hamlet but to me it always seems like it's just kind of there and then you know, it's the early scene when the two guys are giving the the speech to um, Claudius to kind of tell him, like, what's happening. And then at the end, when he comes and, like, sort of claims the crown because everyone's dead. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but they use it as kind of a boogeyman towards everybody, like, because everyone thinks that he's kind of marching, you know, on Elsinore to take the crown from him, even though that's not what's actually happening. And he sort of just happens upon the crown. Right. Um. Really brilliant. The way that, like, Branagh shoots like newspapers like showing like um who is it uh 
Russell um, Rufus Sewell. R- Rufus Sewell. Yeah. Like showing like you know his picture and you know his dark eyes and everything like kind of painting him as a villain even though he's not. Um. Just fantastic performances all around. Like Derek Jacoby is brilliant as Claudius. Um, I think Kate Winslet has this really good balance of sadness and innocence and just lack of comprehension of what's actually occurring around her. And it makes her incredibly tragic as Ophelia. <laughs> when she's lost her mind, right. it's, 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 it's hard. Terrible. It's, like, hard it's really to hard to watch. Yeah. Um, I love uh, Depardieu um, as Laertes. Like, I think that he... I don't know, just there, there's nothing about it that I don't yeah. like. And, like, it's it, it's really difficult, especially in a four-hour movie. And I know you have, like, some minor complaints about it that I don't know that I necessarily... I guess I just don't really care about them so much. Um, especially in some of, like, the stunt casting, I guess, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um. But, man, Branagh is so... Like, so... And we've... We, we, we talked about this for a really long time earlier tonight, but the one of the more pivotal scenes in the movie is the to be or not to be speech. And the fact that Branagh sets a, it up... A, piv- where, a pivotal part of, I would say, every interpretation of Hamlet is this scene right. in some ways. And I think... And just to kind of give some background before you talk about this, is a lot of, a lot of people choose to play that scene as if... Hamlet does not know anybody's listening and it is his internal uh, internal struggle that's right. going on. The way Han- Branagh does it, though. This so, version. yeah, so Branagh, you know, Polonius and, and Claudius have hidden Ophelia, like, in, in the room because they know Hamlet's coming and they want to observe they want to observe Hamlet to see, like, the true nature of his madness. Like, what's causing this madness to happen? And they hide themselves behind a mirror door inside the main, like, hall, you know, where the throne is, the throne room, I guess. The way that Branagh films it is, they shut the door as Hamlet's walking into the hall, and Hamlet almost imperceptibly notices the door shaking on its hinges, the glass. And he walks purposefully over to that mirror and delivers the to-be-or-not-to-be to to himself in a two-way mirror where they can see him on the other side. And cuts to them, like, looking at him on the other side of the mirror. And, number one, like, one of the greatest soliloquies, I think. I mean, maybe, like, you you, you look at the lines that come out of that that are just quoted. Sure. Like, offhand, like, sure. you know, perchance what dreams may come and right. shuffle off this mortal coil. Aye, there's and, the rub. Right. Yeah. Like, all these, all these bits of dialogue that are just, like, part of, like, common, like, parlance sure. now. And Branagh delivers them in this introspective but menacing tone like while removing you know his dirk from its sheath and slowly approaching and then tapping it against the glass to kind of say like this is meant for you even though you don't know that i know you're here yeah and so like so this feeling of like unease and uncertainty in them that does he know that we know or does he know that we're here and then when, ah, oh, poor fucking Kate Winslet, when Ophelia comes out and is just trying to, like, she's trying to, like, love him, man. She's, like, right. she yeah. loves this dude. Uh-huh. And there's, like, two lines of dialogue where he's genuinely happy to see her because Hamlet loves Ophelia. Sure. 
and then realizes that those two set her up to be there mm-hmm. in order to catch him out and has to turn around and act even crazier and in order to continue to throw him off and then basically beats the shit out of her. Yeah, that is a that is a <clears throat> rough scene when he's manhandling her. Like right, I I'm, pushing her I'm getting chills like a little bit like thinking about him having like him being in love with her but having to go through with the act to gain his to figure out to find out if what he suspects is true right he has to take the woman that he loves and throw her around and manhandle her and shove her face up against that two-way window and the fact that like they like you can see like her lips and her face pressed against that mirror and like the spittle kind of coming out of her mouth pressed against it oh it's it's amazingly done and horrific it's such a bold interpretation i think of hamlet because I, I think one of the things with Hamlet, and I don't necessarily like Hamlet as much as like some of the other plays, mm-hmm. like Truth Be Told. And I think it's because like it's always that Hamlet's crazy. You know, mm-hmm. Hamlet's like mad. Mm-hmm. And to make it where Hamlet is just calculatedly mad mm-hmm. enough to like... Sure. Because there's a scene like after this when he goes in, you know, it's another soliloquy where it's I, like me, me thinks the play's the thing or whatever, mm-hmm. however that line goes. Yeah. Where that's where you see Hamlet, I think, Branagh's interpretation of how Hamlet really is. Which is just this guy who's still really distraught that his mm-hmm. dad is dead. His uncle may have murdered him. His mother was so quick to get in bed with his uncle. And he just wants to know the truth. And right. he can't rest until he knows the truth. And is willing to throw away his entire life, you know, in future to find out this truth because that's what matters. And he's even at that point still not sure, am I really seeing this ghost? Is it really this thing? Am I really, like, mad? But to make it where every other bit of that is just him being calculated in it. Like the speech when he's walking with Polonius, like before um, uh, he introduced, like before Rosencrantz and Guildenstern come and like they introduce the thing with the play and he's talking right. to Polonius and mm-hmm. reading things out of the book and he's acting like he's sobbing one minute and then joking the next and stuff. I mean, it's just, it's, yes. it's such an amazingly like nuanced and I think almost like ingenious read on that character that I like, I mean, I never seen that before and it's not how I read Hamlet. Right. You yeah. know, so it's just, it's, it's brilliant to me and it, it works really well. And Branagh has this amazing capacity to take Shakespeare and not push it into the modern era by changing dialogue or anything. Like he's very mm-hmm. precious to like the dialogue itself, but just to interpret it where, it's so eminently watchable in an age where like that kind of language is very difficult to as a viewer to parse sure. necessarily. And he's just, uh, he's, he's, he's brilliant. Like I, I, I love his performances, Hamlet. I love the way it looks like, I don't know. It looks okay. really good. Yes. So let's jump to Destin Howe from the Washington post, a pretty prominent critic in the 1990s so he says there are good things about this Branagh shows us how everything in this play matters in the ultimate scheme of things the story is all action and every speech leads somewhere unfortunately we're stuck with Branagh's direction and there's the rub you can be lifted by Derek Jacoby's intelligent interpretation of Claudius Richard Breyer's superbly stuffy Polonius and Julia Christie's Subtly exquisite Queen Gertrude. You can be amazed by the pristine cinematography, particularly just before the intermission, when Hamlet vows bloody retribution while the camera pulls back to reveal a snowy landscape before him full of advancing troops. 
but there are many more instances when you want to run screaming from Isilnor Castle. Brian Blessed's otherwise respectable turn as the ghost of Hamlet's slain father is destroyed by baby-sized spotlights on his bright blue eyes. He looks like a bearded Chucky, the murderous doll from Child's Play. His loudly recorded exhalations suggest the aqua-lung rasps of Darth Vader and his ghostly apparition is attended by earth-cracking, smoking scenery that suggests a low-budget disaster movie. In his eagerness to open Shakespeare up to everyone, Branagh has loaded the film with casting surprises. In some cases, the effect is rewarding. Charlton Heston has undeniable presence as the player king who appears in the Hamlet stage production. But it's hard to accept whiny old Jack Lemmon as Marcellus, <clears throat> one of the castle's guards, Billy Crystal, who plays the gravedigger, who doesn't come out. Uh, who The gravedigger doesn't... It's Sorry. Billy Crystal, who plays the gravedigger, doesn't come out with, Hey, hamster, how's it hanging? But you half expect it from him. Robin Williams may be a scream in most movies, but in this context, he's an annoying distraction uh, as a weapon supervisor. When Hamlet's readying himself to fight to the death, do we really want Mork to perk up the show? Finally, and most ostentatiously of all, there's Brano's own performance. This is a role the Irish actor could do in his sleep, but the choices he makes are un are usually overextended. When it's time to be funny, he skitters over the top. When it's sad, when when he's sad or touched, he makes a mechanical catching noise in his throat. As for his attempts to be sexy, well, going to the gym is simply not enough. He doesn't take the task easy by parading around in a tight tunic, mustache, dribble goatee, and peroxide blonde mane. Surely he wasn't going for the look of a butch Nazi. <clears throat> So let's take the first thing first, uh, which is the idea of the Brian Blessed is the ghost of Hamlet, right? So that 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 whole sequence you talked about that you like so much, I think I don't go as far as he does, but I just thought that the special effects were kind of cheesy and it just didn't feel right to right. me. Right, but like to me, it's it's meant to illustrate the unreality of it and. That up until Claudius outs himself mm -hmm. to give you, from Hamlet's perspective, that he may just be imagining all that shit in his grief. That's why it's so otherworldly. Like, it's not meant to seem realistic or... You know what I mean? Like, it's okay. it's on purpose. Now, I'm not mm -hmm. saying that it, maybe it's the best directorial mm -hmm. choice, but I understand it. Okay. And, like, I appreciate it, I guess. Okay, so let's jump to the <clears throat> stunt casting as you talked about earlier. With doesn't bother me. Doesn't bother me. No, I don't. I don't care. It's so brief. Like, I mean, the the the, the grave digger scene with the York or whatever. I mean, that's kind of long, but Billy Crystal's fine in it. And the Robin Williams thing is what, like, two minutes, three minutes, maybe. Like, it's not very long. I actually thought the Robin Williams thing was the best out of all of them, possibly. Because the scene's kind of comedic as it is. Yeah, and Jack Lemmon doesn't bother me in that role. I Jack Lemmon. Jack Lemmon delivers that dialogue weird. Like it's it really throws me off when he's ta when he's speaking that yeah you're right Shakespearean dialogue uh, he's he's the one that like I actually felt was out of place uh, more than Crystal right I always um, forget that he's in it yeah because he's just in the beginning for right. five minutes or whatever yeah um, yeah I guess when he's talking to Horatio at the outset like it does feel kind of stilted but so much happens after that, that sure it kind of gets washed sure away. yeah no absolutely and so then finally there's 
Brano himself right, as this performance. I, I I just I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into Branagh's interpretation of it, but I mm-hmm. think Branagh's performance is brilliant. Yeah, and I think that making himself a butch Nazi, I think, is kind of like I think that's the purpose. Like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I how, think he emotes well. I don't necessarily find it to be stilted. Like, how how, how do you mean that though? When you say that that's kind of the purpose, like. I mean, here's this, this almost like perfect Aryan, like Ubermensch kind of, you know, of this man who, if he would just let it go, Mm -hmm. would be king someday. Like has, has this woman that he loves, he's got the entirety of the kingdom at his disposal. He's beloved by everybody. But it's his own, like, nagging anxiety and uncertainty at his father's death that undoes him. Mm. And that's the tragedy of Hamlet. Now, I mean, obviously, like, the revenge is justified in some ways, but at what cost? You know, because, like, everybody dies because of Hamlet's inability to just let it go. And I think that cast and I mean, maybe it's like, I don't know. It doesn't really bother me that he's blonde-haired and blue-eyed necessarily but i think that that's the thing is like here's this like perfect example of masculinity within the context of this world like everybody else is kind of scruffy or they're older or they're a little out of shape Mm -hmm. you know and i think that's purposeful like rosencrantz and gildenstern are out of shape laertes is a little out of shape he's like a little like paunchy and you know slovenly like everybody else like no one else is as handsome or as imposing as hamlet is and yet, every, no one else is as broken or fucking crazy as Hamlet is. And I like that counterbalance. And I think it works well, like... Like, just, like, aesthetically, like, you know, the... I don't know, the... Like, the juxtaposition of, like, these bright blue eyes and this blonde hair and this, like, pale skin and the perfectly trimmed mustache against, like, the black morning clothes mm-hmm. he wears constantly and... I don't know. Like, it doesn't bother me. And I think the performance is amazing. Like, I yeah. think Branagh... I think Branagh knows that character. I just think that maybe it's not that man's interpretation of what that character is. Right. Okay. Um. So, to your point, there was a... This is not criticism, but Ebert writes about this movie, and I think it aligns nicely, and it's kind of how I felt after watching it again... This is only the second time I've ever watched it because I don't. I'm not in the habit of watching four-hour movies. Right. But this is my third, actually. So it? twelve hours of my life spent watching hmm. this movie. Right. <laughs> so, but it's kind of how I feel after I watch this. He says at the end of this Hamlet, I felt at last as if I was getting a handle on the play. I never expect to fully understand it. It has been a long journey. I read it in high school, underlined in famous lines. I saw the Olivier film version. Um, I studied it in graduate school. I have seen it on stage in England and the United States. Franco Zeffirelli's version with Gibson came out in 91. I learned from them all. One of the tasks of a lifetime is to become familiar with the great plays of Shakespeare. Hamlet is the most opaque. Brana's version moved me, entertained me, and made me feel for the first time at home in that doomed royal court. I may not be able to explain Hamlet, but at last, I have a better idea than Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Right. And Another thing that I love about that movie, too, is that... And actually, 
not 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 to cut you off, but the, it's juxtaposed nicely. Like Hamlin immediately knows what Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are doing. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern never know what they're doing. Right. Like they have no idea what they're being asked to do. They're just trying to be like his friends, basically, and like do the right thing. A really interesting read on that is in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yeah, which I, I, if I wasn't overwhelmed with work, I was planning on watching. But. In the way that that Hamlet interacts with um, the two characters. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because, like, there's that really great scene, like, early on when um, Polonius and, uh, um, Polonius, Claudius, and um, Gertrude are, like, getting Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, like, onto their side, sort of. And nobody knows which one is which. Mm-hmm. It's just I don't know. Like, okay. I, I I I love the portrayal of them in this movie. Yeah, because they really are just like unwitting pawns sure. that end up dead for no reason other than the fact that they were just trying to be good guys. Sure. And the difference is like they they were completely unwitting, and I think because everybody's a pawn, right? Really, when it comes down to it in this play, I think that's a really good. Int- a really good definition if you're trying to find one of I think what makes a good adaptation though is especially of something that's been done so many times like this like these plays and these stories is the idea of does it make you does it get you to a place because I don't know if any of us will really fully truly understand because they have so much depth what these plays are really saying because they're saying so much I think at different times but I think the idea that a good adaptation is what gets you the closest to understanding. Sure. Is and I think that's a really good definition just to take forward in my own life, probably. Right. And you know what? Like I don't know if Branagh's interpretation matches Shakespeare's intent, because that will you ever know. Sure. But I like it. Sure. And I think it's an amazing read on something that I was already like pretty familiar. And does it get you closer to some sort of truth? It makes me look. It makes me like that play a hell of a lot more than I ever liked it before. Yeah. So that's why it's third instead of like you know lower because Mm -hmm. it just makes me enjoy a play that I'm not a big fan of necessarily. So. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to number two, which is also in the 1990s, 1995 version of Othello, directed by. Oliver Parker, also starring Kenneth Branagh as Iago, Lawrence Fishburne as Othello himself, Irene Jacob, Nathaniel Parker. It has a 67% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 64% from audiences. So what about this version of Othello stands out to you so much? Um, Othello is probably my favorite uh, Shakespearean tragedy. Uh, my favorite Shakespearean play, like, altogether. Um, mostly because of the character of Iago. Um, Iago is, in my opinion, one of the best villains in literary history. Um, just his, his, his machinations and his single-minded purpose to destroy people for honestly nothing more than like perceived slights. I mean, he really has no reason to destroy these lives other than the fact that he's just kind of an asshole. Um, I really... I don't know, like, I, I love Branagh's performance as Othello, and I love um, Parker as the director, is that right? Oliver Parker. Um, I love the way that, so I think one of the things, and it, we, we, we talked about this in Hamlet, 
in the way that Brandoff films like the to be or not to be seen. And it's, it's similar in the way that Parker films Iago's soliloquies, like his internal monologues, where it's not just someone emoting into nothing. It breaks the fourth wall and it has Iago turn to you as almost like his like dark confidant, like telling you why he's doing these things. And again, like, I, I honestly feel there's no actor that understands Shakespeare better than Branagh does, that understands the dialogue and, like, the meaning of words. And it's really great because there's, I think, maybe, like, four, four scenes where Iago is doing, like, the business of the play and then turns to the camera and speaks to you directly. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's times where he certainly gives little glances to the camera right, like while like scenes are happening sure. mm-hmm. and then when othello is fully crazed by the idea that desdemona and cassio are like engaged in this illicit affair othello starts to do the same thing so it's like it it builds this idea that iago is it basically just insane the entire time because he can like turn and break that fourth wall and speak to you and when Othello was fully, like, immersed in his own insanity, like, he does the same thing. And I think it's a really brilliant directorial choice. Um, Fishburne does an amazing job as Othello, like, with his delivery of the lines. Um, he has that that suave confidence in the beginning that degrades into, like, uncertain menace and then just overt menace. Um there's a really powerful scene when Othello is basically telling Iago, if you're going to tell me that my wife is cheating on me, you better be right or else I'm going to murder you. Um, and basically like is drowning him in the, you know, in the ocean, putting, putting that scene on the shore for some reason works so well. Right. It's, it's really powerful and really there. Yeah. There's something about, and I haven't really thought it through that much, but, there's something symbolically, I think, about the vastness of the sea and him staring out at it to start that scene as he's trying to wrestle with these ideas right. and putting it on this kind of th- threshold border. And then, yeah, like the, the violence that Othello shows in trying to drown Iago... Right, foreshadows the violence that's sure. to come in some ways and and in a way is trying to drown his own doubts because sure right and that, that that that's another thing that i think is a really interesting interpretation of the play is that i mean the whole beginning is about you know um is it Rod- Roderigo is the guy that's the wants to be the suitor to desdemona but you know then othello's already married her. yeah uh-huh. and so iago from the beginning is trying to get Roderigo to like, sort of, like, get Othello, like, murdered for, mm-hmm. you know, for being a Moor and for sleeping with, you know, this this white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and that scene is really powerful. But you, even though, like, Fishburne plays Othello as completely self-assured in that scene, mm-hmm. there's really, like, nice small subtleties that hint that he feels like because he's being judged that maybe I don't know how to explain like the way, like the nuance of Fishburne's performance, but like when it comes down to like Iago planting that seed, like it's easy for Iago to plant the seed 
because you feel like Othello already has those own doubts in himself that maybe maybe she is just with him because he's you know the famous general at the time mm-hmm. and she's sort of smitten with the almost like the taboo of being mm-hmm. with you know the more or right. whatever um i i think the performance of desdemona is fantastic like i like her mm. her sad resignation that like she's always steadfast in her denial and that that's one of the things i like the most about desdemona as a character is that she's not weak you know she's very very much assured that she's done nothing wrong and that he's you know he's wrong in accusing her but he still is her husband and she's still trying to soothe him in a lot of ways and when he murders her like you know towards the end in the last like the last third of the play the fact that it's so gentle at first and she almost feels like he's reconciling with her and then he smothers her and it's it's really powerful and I don't know, like performance wise, it's the, it really is the reason it's my number two film is that I, I just, I, I think Branagh's read of Iago is so like note perfect and just the way that he delivers that dialogue and the way that he moves so seamlessly between being like confidant to all these different people and his machinations and the way, is it, um, Amelia, right? That's his wife. Yeah. Something yes. like that. Um, the way that he manipulates her, I don't know. Like, and there's, there's certain like subtleties in the dialogue that I don't think I understood fully until seeing Branagh like emote them, um, as to why, like he's trying to destroy Cassio and Othello. And it really is that he's just this moderately impotent dude that, is just jealous of everybody and just wants to destroy everybody because he's jealous of their position and their, their youth and their vigor. And he's he's such a monster, such a, such a well-crafted villain for somebody that's a villain without ever being like, like no one even knows, like the, the first person that realizes he's a villain and it's a great scene is when Roderigo, um, confronts him and says you know you promised me desdemona within whatever like a fortnight and it hasn't happened and if you don't deliver her now then i'm going to basically like ruin you and iago conspires to get him killed and the way that that scene is acted with roderigo you know basically and and cassio murdering each other more or less even though cassio doesn't die but like attacking each other and then the way they film it where iago is in the infirmary and Roderigo like rolls over with his dying breath and like kind of just silently accuses Iago of being the man that killed him. It's just, it's really well done. And I love that performance of Roderigo too. Like I like him. <clears throat> he really is like the classical, like effete. I don't know, like British fop almost in the beginning. And then like when he's drunken, the scene where they're underneath the wagon where the two people are like having sex above him and they're talking about the lust of man. And then there's maybe even some implication that Iago might be like a little bit gay because he like, you know, puts his hand like on the inside of Roderigo's thigh. Yeah. There's definitely scholarship that leans in that direction sometimes that that could be the, the big question of this play ultimately always is what is the motivation for Iago doing this? 
Right. And I, at, his, I, at his core, what's the motivation? Like, obviously, he has something to gain from it. But what's what's at the core? And some scholars have certainly seemed to read it as that there is a latent homosexuality that is inspiring uh, these actions because he actually is secretly attracted to Cassio and Othello. Yes, I think I I think that scene specifically you're talking about. I really don't think that there's anything necessarily homosexual about it. I think it's more that showing that he will do what he needs to do. Oh, right. And if it has to be to caress a thigh, then he'll do it because he's that manipulative. I always read it not so much as Iago being a homosexual, but in that he there's a deep attraction but his attraction is to the pa- is the power itself so well, yeah it's 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 a jealousy at how easily sure. othello who he views as an inferior because he's a moor right is able to like achieve the the confidence of the prince and whatever um sure. yeah the governor of venice or whatever right. that that sure. role is um, but I, I think it is, I think it's jealousy. I think it's greed. And yeah. I think it's the fact that he's just this craving guy that doesn't have the ability to achieve it on his own. So he tries to do it through, yeah. you know, gross manipulation and Branagh just does such an amazing job, like portraying <clears throat> like that, that cold calculated confidence that Iago has that he masks with like these, you know, overtures of love and camaraderie and, mm-hmm. you know, he, definitely can weave himself into like any situation and become the guy that people view as being, I don't know, trustworthy and honest and loyal. And I think Othello calls him like loyal Iago and Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. It's like the irony. Yeah. He, he, yeah. He, there's a few different adjectives. I think that he gives Iago, like different people give Iago that um, are completely wrong. Yeah. Especially because like, that's what, you know, like Michael Cassio is described as that, like a lot early in the play and then after the scene where Cassio brawls and like Othello is basically like casts him out um I never done a word study on Othello ever before we've talked all fair about how I did it with Macbeth and the word done is the word that shows up most in Macbeth I've never done it on Othello but I want to I would guess that it's something around the idea of C, maybe, if I had to, like, mm. see like how many words are, how many times a word appears in some way. I think things that have to do with vision or sight probably appear the most. I mean, it makes sense, because I think, thematically, I think that's what this play is, what's going on here in a lot of it. Um, all these plays have something to do with not like knowledge like epistemology like what can you know how can you know it and you know and how that plays out throughout all of these plays can does hamlet know that his uncle murdered his father like you know how can he know that you know we see it in you know with the witches and prophecy and those kind of things in Macbeth, and it's like this is i think where it's the last one he does before lear or no before Macbeth, and it's like i think you see it here Maybe in its like rawest form of the idea sure. of the idea of give me the ocular proof, and it's like, is he when you want that when you want to know something, especially if it's something bad, is 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 knowing going to make anything any better? 
And it's like, and to some degree, doesn't matter if he knows or not, because now, because we already see, and I think this is what the film does beautifully, is it's already in his head. Right. He's already seen it. I mean, whether it's true or not, he's already seen it. Yeah, he's, and he's, that's what's tormenting Othello so much is what he thinks is happening. You know, is seeing it going to make it any better? If he actually catches Cass, uh, Cassio and Desdemona in the act, what's going to happen then? Like, is that is that is that what you really need? Is you need to see it? Like, you need to be cuckolded to to know the truth? Is that really what this is about? Yeah. And it's like, as, and, they, and the way that they play with the handkerchief and all those kind of things and who knows what. And then it's like all these people think they know Iago, but they don't really know him. And Shakespeare for, is really interested in that through all this. But I think you really get down to it in this play on a human level. And right. I think that the movie does a really good job of showing you how Othello reacts to all of these things, including his imaginations and including the way that Fishburn, which some people criticize, but the way he acts when he's imagining it. Oh, right. Yeah. With like the, the, the head motions and the yeah. eyes. Were... I really like that, actually, like as a stylistic choice. Mm-hmm. Just showing like his. Like he's almost in like, like having a like an like a seizure almost sure. because he's so conflicted. Right. And it's funny because like to the ocular proof thing, the way that it's filmed. And one of the reasons I love this play so much is because. It really is one of Shakespeare's smaller plays where there's not a whole lot that actually happens. And Mm -hmm. it's very, like you look at, there's probably like what, like 40 characters in Hamlet. And even in something like Romeo and Juliet probably has like 20 characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Othello has like, like eight or nine characters. Primary characters. Like overall, aside from like second business people, like that's really what drives it. Yeah. We've named all of them except for Bianca probably. Yeah. And I was just about to talk about Bianca. So like one of the best things about it is when Iago is playing both sides where he has Othello hidden in the um like behind the I guess it would be like a curtain in the play but like he's hidden behind like this wall like where he can sort of see through this lattice <laughs> it's a it's a, it's, 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 a, a it's dungeon it's a cell right uh, yeah where he can see Cassio and Cassio is obviously in love with Bianca in the mm-hmm. way that it's filmed and obviously but the way that Iago manipulates it and the way that Branagh plays it like off both sides Mm-hmm. where he's saying one thing to Cassio where it can imply something to Othello that's not actually implied mm-hmm. that Cassio is just playing along with sure. this guy that he thinks of as his friend. <clears throat> and then, and, and again, there it goes that there's that equivocation. Yeah. That double speak. Um, so yeah. really just, I like d- directorially it's, it, it's fine. Like there's some really beautiful scenes in it. I actually love, um, I love the scene in the beginning where they're on the gondolas and uh, Rodrigo is like yelling at um, Desdemona's dad mm-hmm. to like, you know, you need. Where's your daughter? Is is your daughter in your house? Um, and <laughs> well, and Iago's <laughs> like Iago's Iago, him, like, Iago establishes himself immediately by feeding him lines, and then is like, okay, I gotta go. <laughs> right. Yeah, just really, really well yeah. done. And the, yeah. the, the, those scenes, the scenes of Venice are very beautiful, and I, I like the way they film Cyprus too. Like it's um. Very, very tropical, very blue and, you know, like yellow and it, mm-hmm. it feels, you know, like, like an island in the Mediterranean, which I guess, I don't know if they filmed on anywhere on location there, but just really well done. Um, I like the ending too with um, the last, 
Well, I, I like the burial at sea thing, but I also really like that last shot where, you know, Othello, Desdemona, Amelia all like collapsed on the bed and Iago just kind of like resting against their legs. Because yeah. um, I guess in the in, in the play, Iago is like taken away in chains to be mm-hmm. tortured and killed mm-hmm. and Cassio is kind of like installed as right. Othello's replacement. And that that's that still happens here, but just that scene of them all that like this is what iago has wrought is like sure. all this like death mm-hmm. and that's just like his resting place is like in death with them kind of it's just really powerful and really well done mm-hmm. um i'm surprised by what'd you say 67 percent from critics yeah what's well the... okay so Destin, we're going to go back to Dustin howard from washington post again he says with the exception of brana whose narcissistic bratty qualities and shakespearean training inform the role disconcertingly well the performers seem horribly out of place. Fishburne, who is an instinctively good but cold screen actor, never pulls us into Othello's soul. Trying to portray military bearing, sensuality, and innate nobility, he looks unintentionally arrogant at some times and dramatically outmatched, chiefly by Brauna, in others. As the object of Othello's grand affections, Irene Jacob <clears throat> remains tentative and frankly not worth all the fuss. She seems doubly out of place as a 20th century movie actress doing Shakespeare and as a French speaker caught in an English language picture. Fishburne and Jacob also do not look comfortable together, so their affair doesn't look right. So there's critique of that, which is common of the performances of Fishburne, which is mixed. And honestly, Irene Jacob, most people have problems with her performance. Yeah, see, I like it. Like, I think she seems like a hopeless romantic in it. Like, she seems idealistic and flighty and that's how i kind of view desdemona like she's truly just in love with this guy and never understands even upon her death like what she did to cause you know like a front and i think i mean iago is outmatching othello mentally throughout the play like at every turn like he's 100 percent manipulating this guy Mm -hmm. so i think that plays well in the way that Branagh Fishburne. I mean, I <clears throat> I don't know anything about the production, but I would almost feel like that would be a conscious choice on their part that Branagh would overmatch him because that's how it's supposed to be. Like Othello, Othello's a doofus in the play. Like he's not, he's immediately tricked by Iago's, you know, chicanery. Like he is never, it's like Romeo. Like everyone, like again, like people talk about like this is like some grand romantic like role but it's not he's just a lusty kid and he othello might be like a great general but he's not very wise when it comes to you know like picking out who his friends are and like when he's being manipulated that's what makes a that's what that's what makes iago such a great villain because he like pinpoints exactly the small things that he knows will push othello over the edge like Othello's not a hero at all Othello's. What do you think about, given that, the idea that his final grand statement is that, like, remember me that, what is it, that I love not wisely, but too well. Like, do you think that line, Othello, that's how he wants to be remembered, is accurate? I think in his own mind. Right. I mean, to him. Do you you think that's really, that's what I'm asking, do you think that's what uh, Othello... Do you think it's him massaging his narrative, his 
like almost post-mortem like trying to like you know this is how i would like to be remembered right, because, because he not, doesn't because he doesn't believe it or because he believes it no he he hmm. believes it because he doesn't even realize until i mean he stabs iago basically that iago's a villain mm-hmm. like it's in the final moments right. you know there's not a whole lot of like falling action after othello realizes he's been duped i mean it's it, it's just wrong like his mm. statement's 100 percent wrong like sure, he didn't sure, love well sure right absolutely he but, didn't love but you wisely. believe that he thinks that he really thinks that right well i think he doesn't okay. want to die like completely right. bereft of any sort of hope of you know salvation sure okay well uh, so do you then do you think that it's that's what he do you think he really believes that about himself, or is that what he hopes? That's what he that, hopes, I think. Okay, yeah, okay. Um, I'll go to another critique, and maybe we'll talk We'll talk about Fishburne a little bit more in this role. So, Ebert only gives it two stars, even though he gave four stars to the Hamlet production. Mm. He says... He says, Brana's Iago um, is well done. He's the best thing in the movie. But he makes Iago curiously distant from the main line of action. Iago is in love with conspiracy and his co-conspirators and destroys Othello as a byproduct of his obsession. And Othello, as played by Fishburne, never seems truly the truly happy husband and triumphant general the play initially requires, but seems even in early scenes to be somehow aware of his destiny. Later in the film, his character, consumed by jealousy, Fishburne makes interesting physical choices as when his head is so filled with the images of adultery that he cannot remain still and twist restlessly. The result is a movie that will not give its viewers much of an idea of the Shakespeare play and may inadvertently give them other ideas about interracial love that were not much on Shakespeare's mind. Many people seeing the film will read it as a story of a jealous black man who wins but cannot trust his white wife and so kills her. There is a lot more to it than that. In particular, there's the way Shakespeare uses language to describe and dramatize universal human weaknesses. Either the, audi- either the audience thinks there before the grace of God go we, or the production has not worked. Read the play. I always hate Ebert's little pithy things at the end most of the time. All right, so... So, first of all, Fishburne... I, I want to talk about the idea that Fishburne... Feels like he knows his own destiny, to quote Ebert, too early on in the story. Right, I don't think that's true. It isn't until... I wonder if the way he describes it, though, Ebert does, knowing his destiny too early, is more of what you're reading it as is what you've already stated. Is that... How did you word it earlier? That he, he... he seems already like he's the type of person that might be open to manipulation. I can't remember how you worded it, but right. that he he's, himself, he already has insecurities. He's quick to believe because even though he's exonerated in the beginning, you know, I mean, the Desdemona's father says to him, if she so easily tricked I, who am like, whatever, like the master of her heart, how easily will she turn on you or something? I can't remember the right, exact right. kind of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's like, that's in the play. And that's sure. part of, sure. you know, I think that sets the stage for you to like, believe it when Othello, I mean, I think Ebert's wrong. Like you're never supposed to believe that Othello 
is some like master of himself because otherwise then it's completely unbelievable when Iago is so easily able to manipulate him. And I mean, I think they pretty early on squash the racial element to it, you know, in the sense that you know, she married him and mm-hmm. it's just the marriage stands because it's, it's a legal mm-hmm. marriage and he's this great general. Yeah. I think that's the thing is that this is a man that's like wise in war and foolish in life. And right. they build that slowly. And obviously the play provides you with a lot more dialogue and a lot more, mm-hmm. I think like build up to it. Whereas in a movie, like you couldn't have that much and not have it be like a three hour movie. Yeah. It'd be a three hour movie probably. But they do it really well, I think, with the interaction between Branagh and Fishburn. And I I don't know, like I don't I don't get the criticism of Fishburne's performance. Like I think it's a really I think again, it's a guy who is very easy and free with commanding men and is very uncomfortable and uncertain when it comes to dealing with the actual affairs of like life, like being a husband and being a statesman outside of like being in battle. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Like, I think this, I think it's fine. I think it, I don't think that there's anything about this movie that undercuts or changes the basic premise of the play really. And I don't mm-hmm. think that like, and again, like Othello is one of the plays that I really like know probably better than the other ones. And I don't think that it changes Othello as a character. Like mm-hmm. I remember thinking the same thing about Othello when I was fucking, 15 years old, 16 years old and reading this play. So <clears throat> I, I don't quite understand. I don't see where this adaptation does anything to force people to look at the interracial angle of that affair necessarily any more than right. It's never really, it's never mentioned again. Right. Yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that maybe that's your own prejudice in 1995 it's seeing like an interracial couple on the screen sure but aside from the fact that that's what Roderigo tries to use as the impetus to you know get the father mad and 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 there's certainly reference there's there's ways i mean the the more is used a number of times in that play and i think that is certainly but only by people like only by Iago when he's trying sure. to diminish Othello to other Agre- people. Agreed, agreed. It's it's right. Iago trying to use, it's it's trying to dehumanize Othello yes. as a person, but that's part of Iago's character. That's understood, part of the understood, right? Yeah, but I'm saying I I don't think, and they actually use it. I think a lot less in. Well, they cut a lot out of right. the play, but yeah, there's a lot of, but but I I mean they use it a lot less here, but it's it's only used as a t- so it's like there's not. There's not any more than what the play does in terms of like any kind of yeah. even subtle reference to race, right? And I, I don't so, think that the movie, and because he's right, it wasn't really on Shakespeare's right. mind that much. In, I don't think it's on the movie's mind except for I the don't fact either. that you're actually seeing it. And that's what I think it is, is because we actually have a black ca- actor being right. cast as Othello for the first time in like a major movie. In a major movie, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah in a major movie, like. Yeah, yeah, there's project. like like Yafek Kodo played Othello at one point or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I I I disagree with that. Yeah. And again, like, I think Branagh's performance is like sublime, almost. Like, it's it's definitely my favorite film version of Iago, like by a mile. Mm-hmm. Okay, you want to move on to number one? Sure. Okay, so number one on the list is 
1985 movie, Ron, directed by Akira Kurosawa, starring Tetsuya Nakadai, Akira Tarai, Mikio Harada, Jimpachi Nezu, and Dusaki Ryu. It is a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, a 95% from audiences. Did you want to go ahead and tell us this? Well, first of all, this is an adaptation, a, a loose adaptation of King Lear. Yep. That was a when Kurosawa started writing this in the mid 70s. He was actually basing it off of a old Japanese legend, uh, like folktale that when he heard about Lear, he started reading it and realized the similarities and basically ended up, Lear ended up inspiring the way he told the story of the myth that he was writing, the Japanese myth. So it's it's a loose adaptation of Lear in terms of the story at times and the way that it plays out a little bit. But um, right, it's the most spiritually, it, hit, it, it hits Lear. Right. About exactly perfect. So, do you want to go ahead and Yeah, the major beats are all King Lear. Yeah, the major beats are. And I just think from, like, thematically and, um, like, just the spirit of the movie, I think it it captures Lear very well. Yeah, I mean, especially the way that um, Ichimanji, like, Hidatori, um, as the Lear character, you know, the the father of the clan, like the Shogun or Daimo or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um... Number one, this is arguably, I think, the most beautiful film I've ever seen. Um, It's definitely... If it's not the most beautiful, it's up there. Right. It's definitely among, like, the most masterful use of color and natural light and... Setting and, I mean, just everything about it. Like, he's... It's so exquisite, like, the way that it looks and, like, everything. Like, in the the battle scenes and the quiet scenes, the way that he films, you know, the interior of the castles. Like, everything about it is just gorgeous. And as a telling of Lear, I think it's... I think it's pretty brilliant the way that it's... It's odd because, like, so in, in Lear itself, it's the honeyed words of, um... Is it Griselda and... Who's the other one? The two daughters who kind of trick Lear into believing that they love him most, so he'll give, like, the majority of his kingdom to them. And then it's um, Cordelia or whatever is Cordelia the youngest. Cordelia is the youngest, yeah. Who ends up, like, basically doing... So they have Saburo like Zabur- Zabur- is Zabur- the youngest son who's basically says, what you're doing right now is going to fracture the kingdom and you can't sure. trust my older brothers because... Right. And they'll eventually fracture and turn on you and right. you know Ichimanji um disowns him and sends him and um Tengo, like who's his like trusted lieutenant away, um, kind of banishes them, um, but ends up like Saburo's exactly right, you know, what he says is gonna happen. So Taro, the older son, who's married to um Kade, who's a woman that Ichimanji like killed her whole family, basically. Um during the wars because there's been war for decades you know between these clans to try and control this valley in japan and now that the war is over and now there's a measure of peace um hitatori ichimanji the the father thinks that he can retire and live a peaceful life 
And Saburo correctly says, you know, all you've taught us is war. How do you feel like any of us can, like, live peacefully if, like, all we know is, like, murdering each other? Um, and he's right. You know, there's an amazing scene where um, uh, Jiro, the second son, assaults um, Taro's castle. Um, basically, like, it's it, it's a coup. Because Taro, the eldest son, has been named the successor. Um, but, it, like, from the beginning, like, just alienates Ichimanji. And, you know, the, it's it's a really bleak and sad portrayal of a man who felt like he had achieved something, like having everything in his life destroyed in front of him to the point where it breaks him and he mm-hmm. becomes like a deaf mute crazed wanderer like just wandering the wastes of his kingdom like and ending up at the castle of a family that he murdered Mm -hmm. um and just like deteriorating like mentally you know to the point where you know he's still followed by um i can't remember how you say his name kiki juro or whatever his his fool um who still is loyal you know he still has all Mm -hmm. these people that are like loyal retainers Mm -hmm. to him um and the way that Kurosawa films it, like almost in like a no like theater style with um like the white face like painting him so he mm-hmm. appears like almost supernatural himself, you know, and just again, like the way that he uses natural light like throughout mm-hmm. this movie is it's just astounding. Like to show like the sky particularly, like he's he films the sky a lot, and there's a lot of of shots of clouds moving or the sun or when it becomes overcast um you know like the clouds like one of the greatest scenes in the film is um Hidatori is basically like the end and is like laid down in these rocks like he's escaped from Kikijuro and he's like laying in these rocks and Saburo and Tango come upon him to try and rescue him and he says you know like it, it shows from his perspective just these. Almost, it's almost like I don't know if psychedelic is the right word, but it's like very, um, very stylized with like these really dark storm clouds like moving fast overhead. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm in the afterlife, and why are you trying to like remove me from this? Let me just dig myself back into my grave, like leave me alone, and just really powerful. And it's right before Saburo dies. Um, and basically everyone dies in this movie. Like there's no, there's no, I don't know, like happy ending for anybody really. Yeah. There's no silver linings in this. Um, I I always, I always wondered, he films the sky so often, like the beginning, it's, it's almost like he's like in the, in the way that the clouds look when he films the sky a lot of times, it's like. I wonder if it's supposed to be representative of um, the heavens, almost. Like, it's like this... In Lear, one of those lines that's always stood out to me that I associate most with Lear because of its bleakness is the idea of uh, we're like flies, the one schoolboys. Right. Um, uh, like, uh, what is it? I'm Actually, I'm forgetting it now. It's like... Like where where's flies the one schoolboys like the gods kill us for for their sport or something yeah, like that. I, right. and I always wondered, it's not exact, but it, I always wondered if that wasn't like a almost like a 
a sign of like something like that by filming the heavens is almost like no there there's no sound coming from it it's just like we're the like all this tragedy is playing out all these deaths are happening because of all this and there's just this silence from up above and i wonder if like i've always wondered if that was an artistic choice to kind of show how bleak like these lives of these humans that just go around manipulating and hurting and murdering each other are so i i look at it as a different way okay than that i look at it as how meaningless it all is no i think that's what i'm saying but i don't agree. like that all these things are happening and again i think it's kurosawa like truly embracing color mm-hmm. film you know and like just the expansiveness of like filming in these environments but it's like no matter what's happening down there, the clouds are just moving. The mm-hmm. sun is passing. Time is moving on. Yeah, you could. I could see that. It's all more like nature than, like, like this is this is almost like. Here's the natural world, and all this stuff is happening, that are caused by humans. Like it's 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 their whatever it is insecurities, jealousies, all these things. But nature just keeps moving right. forward. But to your point though, so there's the. Because there's that scene in the first, like, the first, the the castle, the first castle, the time that the, uh, what is his name, uh, Tarot, Tarot's Tarot. Um, castle was taken. Right. And right, I think it's like right at the beginning of that, that invasion, they have that shot of the sky where like the kind of the, the clouds are there. Right, but well, the, the clouds are moving over to cover the sun, basically. Right, and everything right. Comes and the, and the, but that sun's still kind of shining through a piece right. of it. And it and it looks heavenly in some ways, and like I, I think that might be the thing. That... Heavenly but dark. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I mean, there has to be something there because he is so careful about the way he films the sky, mm-hmm. and even when he's not filming the sky, like there's the scene later when um Ichimanji is like when Hitatori is like wandering down the hill from the destroyed castle, third castle, I guess, mm-hmm. or whatever it is, um. And the clouds are passing overhead, and you can see the shadow of the cloud without actually seeing the cloud itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of like he's like covered in shadow, and then he's like in light again, and right. like sort of I guess like showing like his like uncertain mindset mm-hmm. or his like insanity kind of. Yeah. Um, I I really think. I really think it's meant to just seem hellish mm-hmm. when he films the taking of the castle. I mean, and there's yeah. definitely um. Ah oh, shit. It's like the Buddhist, like, Scrolls of Hell or something like that. I, I can't remember. Maybe it's not Buddhist. Um, there's a another Japanese horror movie called Jingoku that kind of, like, does it too. But just the way that he films, like, really the overt violence and, like, brutality of everything. And, you know, the guy, like, gets run over by the horse and the guy has yeah. the arrow through his eye and there's blood everywhere yeah. and... Yeah, the concubines that, are like murdering each other, like to yeah. commit seppuku, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, the guy crawling yeah, for right. two That's, seconds is one of the more horrifying images in that. Yeah, sequence. with the pile of bodies all around yeah. him, like it, it really is just hell, and that's what breaks, you know, Hitatori's mind is that he fought so long to like keep this away from his family and basically like like waged war, but. He did the same thing. Like, they referenced that repeatedly that, you know, 
you murdered my mother and my Mm -hmm. brother and my father and you know you murdered everyone in my house to achieve it and like how can you now like seek peace sure and i think maybe that's the whole thing is that ultimately like he can't like escape you know i guess his comeuppance for his like brutal life that he's lived even though like he he truly wants to i think and he really is just an old man that wants to retire and live a peaceful life but he hasn't created a world where that peaceful life is you know Sure, I mean, it it plays on in themes that are in these other plays and movies as well as in terms of the cycle of violence. Right. I mean, violence begetting violence in terms of Hamlet, in terms of Macbeth. I mean, I I think it shows up a lot. Romeo and Juliet. I mean, even, it's like, I mean, I think that's... Kurosawa, too, specifically. Like, Kurosawa loves Shakespeare. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, because you almost put Throne of Blood on here as a Macbeth adaptation. Yeah, I, at one point, you considered it, I mean, at least. There's just small things about Throne of Blood that make me... Like, I love Throne of Blood, but mm-hmm. I like it less as a Macbeth adaptation than I like the actual Macbeth. Yeah. Um, I think The Bad Sleep Well is his Hamlet interpretation. Mm-hmm. His Hamlet mm-hmm. um, interpretation or adaptation, whatever. Um, he definitely, like, is really into... He, and he did that a lot with other, you know, like classic Japanese myths or whatever um sure the lower depths is based off of uh who is i can't remember what playwright that is right oh, now right um yeah i don't know but it's yeah, based off of play too like a yeah. tolstoy is that right no not tolstoy um i don't remember you're right yeah yeah but like rashomon and um hidden fortress like all this stuff is based off of like older stories um but yeah just a really like Gork, it's gorky gorky that's what it right. it's it's both like visually stunning and really disturbing to watch and it's just there's something about the way the kurosawa films the armor and the banners and just having like like thousands of people on screen at once like running around and just like i mean because ron means like chaos or sure. turmoil yeah. <clears throat> like just all that chaos happening simultaneously just around this man, it, it truly, like, Lear, out of all the characters in these movies we've talked about in the plays, Lear is truly, like, the most, or Ichimanji in this case, mm-hmm. the most tragic character because he really was just trying to do, like, the right thing. Like, he's really, he makes a bad decision, but <clears throat> it really isn't through hubris. It's just him trying to, like, pass his kingdom along to his sons. Well, the, the the decision, I think it has to do with sight again. It's like he he can't really see them for who they are when he makes the decision. And I, I think that's the thing with Cordelia, ultimately, in the play, is that he right. can't see that she's the good one. Right, and he doesn't see the He doesn't see it, he, and, and then the irony of the whole thing, which, you know, might be trite in 2019, but is that, you know, in the play is that he ends up blind. Only when he's blind does he realize that does he see and he realizes that she was the she was the one that he should have chosen all along right and i think it's something similar happens here is yeah but when he's holding when he's like riding with saburo at the end when he's mm-hmm. finally like regained his yeah. sanity and his hope mm-hmm. that like i just i'm gonna live with you right. and i'm gonna be a good father to you and mm-hmm. this is how it should have been in the first place and yeah. then they both you know die sure yeah that um Saburo well, especially. It's, who's... it's funny because I, Freud, which, you know, not a 
literary critic necessarily, but Freud always thought psychologically that Cordelia in the play represented death and that it's only when he carries Cordelia's dead body and kind of recognizes her for what she was is Lear finally accepting death himself. Hmm. And that's really what the play psychologically is all about is the acceptance of death. I mean, uh, which, which is, which it, oddly it, plays out very much right. similar here. It, it, mean, it fits with the way the Kurosawa does it because sure. the reason that he's wandering, you know, like, insensitive or whatever around his kingdom is because he can't accept that it was able to fall apart so fast mm. that all these terrible things are happening you know like he sits there and again like it's it's that castle attack scene where he's sitting there with like blood all around him and like it's in flames and there's arrows like flying past him as mm. he just sits there and stares into the distance because he's his mind is snapped at like he can't he can't accept the magnitude of like what's occurred Mm -hmm. and it really is the small thing of like the son that he banished like coming back that sort of like knocks him out of it and that's the ultimate tragedy is and that's when like you know that he dies like it really is Saburo going after his father like still trying to be the dutiful son and do the right thing that causes him to lose his life like if he just would have left you know he was married to the daughter of the other um diamo or whatever and could have just lived out a good life and had to go back for his father because it was the right thing to do um i also like there. there's so much that kurosawa does with color in this movie um in the sense that taro is the cowardly one and he's yellow and jiro is the violent one and he's red and saburo is the peaceful dutiful one and he's blue and just the way that like from the very beginning kurosawa gives you these clues as to what's going to play out and you know, if you know King Lear, you already know like what the end of the story is. But it just really, it's just amazing, and it's such a such a masterpiece. Really, one of my one of my favorite movies of all time, honestly. Yeah, this is. I think Chuck was the first person that made me watch this. Probably when I was like nineteen or twenty was the first time I saw it, and this is the third time I've seen it. And every time, it's just as good and just as powerful. Oh, yeah. And it blows you away like every time it does. And I think the thing that I really appreciated most this time that is, is realizing how there's two distinct stories really happening is they're all the same story, but it's like two distinct threads of this very naturalistic performances, naturalistic performances by the, the sons and lady. What's it? it, Kade. Um, and, Lady Cade, and it's like these very naturalistic performances of people trying to exert power and manipulate and all these things, and all that's playing out, while you also have this side story of the Lear character himself with the fool going along in this, like you said, well, no, no, in, 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 this, in this very different type of acting, different type, and it almost makes that story seem, which is what it's supposed to be, I suppose, but here's the human drama playing out in one place. And there's almost this kind of metaphysical drama playing out sure. with the Lear character. And I just think it's fascinating to go back and forth between those two right. things and watch as they end up all becoming one eventually. And I think it's I, all very deliberate. Too. I think like, it's all. And I think even in being a two hour and 40 minute movie, I think it's very well paced because no, of yeah. that. Like it doesn't feel like a two hour. No, and 40 minute it, it definitely it definitely like 
that that movie keeps moving like continuously through its to its like tragic conclusion but um yeah yeah just a brilliant brilliant yeah. film uh besides a couple references that they think it's an old man who's lost his touch in a couple reviews that I saw that were very short and gave no specifics I I couldn't find any criticism right. I, I of this even, movie. I wouldn't even understand that criticism. Yeah. Like this is look, Kurosawa is one of my I don't know, maybe like two or three favorite directors of all time. And this is by far my favorite Kurosawa movie. Yeah. Like this is a masterpiece. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating. When did he start was Kagemusha that's the first caller? Yeah. Nah, I don't know if that's true. He might have filmed um what is it the Seiyu or whatever okay it's it's this but obviously Kage Musha is almost like a test run for this movie right like we we talked about that at it's episode four top yeah. um, five uh, Palm Door winners mm. uh we talked about Kage Musha and it's obvious that Kage Musha is him testing out color I thought Kage Musha was period pieces of the seventies. Is it? No, oh, maybe it is. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm pretty it's sure. It's not Palm Door. Okay. Because we cheated because he filmed Kagemusha in 79, but it wasn't released till 80, but then I Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, 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 you cheated. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I'm talking about Kurosawa whenever I can. Right. But um, obviously, yeah, so that was 79. Right. So, yeah. but it, it still, it feels like, and it just took him a while to get funding for this movie. Like, um, it, it right. took him a little bit well, to get funding for Ron. Big ass movie. Sure. But. That definitely feels like, but I think that that little practice, I think, in color too, and then to nail color that well, yeah, it's. Brilliant. I mean, shows that Kurosawa is like it's, it's just amazing. It's it's Kagemusha, Ron, the Seiyu, Dodeskaiden, and Dreams. I guess mm-hmm. there is five color. Yeah. I, I think, and, and I, I feel uh-huh. bad that I don't know that right. right off the top of my head. But um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 it, it's a masterpiece. Like yeah. it's just really, yeah. like I don't know. So many movies try to be epic and try to have this feel. And it's like, it's such an intimate story told on such a grand scale that so effortlessly moves between these huge, like, fucking battles. To, like, you know, the opening scene is just this small thing of them on horseback, like, looking out over the mountains. Sure. And then sitting in that tent, like, with the fool, you know, doing the mm-hmm. rabbit thing. Yeah. Um, the, the Yeah, the, the, the opening scene with just, I mean, which lasts a long time the mate the first major scene of them all sitting there as he's getting ready to hand over the kingdom right i mean that sequence lasts almost like 20 minutes yeah it's, but, it's pretty but, long but, sequence. but it's so captivating right and, and so it's beautiful. so beautiful it's one it of the is. most beautiful things i've ever seen on film the like, wind the way the sun looks right. like the suburb yeah. cutting down those like the bamboo shoots or whatever to put above them to have give them shade sure. like showing uh-huh. that even though, like, they're all sort of, like, appalled at his looseness with his language, that he right. still is, like, the dutiful one that's sure. trying to take care of him. Right. Um, I don't know. It's just, yeah, uh, yeah just a, a brilliant movie. Yeah. And really, like, to me, the best adaptation, because it is, like, so much of a departure in terms of, like, setting and the characters and whatnot, but still hues so close to the like spirit of the you know the original mm-hmm. play it's um it's really good yeah everyone should watch ron yeah no absolutely it's it's like one one of those movies like everybody should see probably in their lifetime okay 
I feel much better now that list is done. I'm glad. It feels <laughs> it feels like we've been talking about this list for when well, maybe we have to some degree. We've been talking about it for months now, um, and we stayed in roughly in time. Yeah, right. Two hours and seven minutes as of right now. Right. So, um, for us. So next week we will be taking a, a rapid departure from <laughs> Shakespeare. And we will be discussing the uh, doing a third man series with a friend of ours, Marvin Cole. Uh, we'll be discussing the best films, Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. And then we'll be taking a break as we normally do in the third week. And then we will be coming back at the end of the month with 19, the best top five horror movie, B horror movies in 1983. So that's what we have coming up in April. Thank you everyone for listening. If you wanted to, Check out the podcast. Remember that you can look at us, uh, find us on our host Podbean. You can find us on Google Podcasts. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, pretty much any podcatcher that you use. It's on there right now. Um, we're on Spotify now as well. If you wanted to email us any of your own list suggestions, you can do it at two guys five movies at gmail.com. That's the number two and five, two guys five movies gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, uh, which helps us a lot. If uh, any any likes or shares that you can give us on Facebook has really helped uh, our listenership a lot. So we appreciate those people that are doing that. Yeah. And um, you know, if 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 you have the time, please, please go ahead and do that for us. Other than that, I hope everybody has a good night. And Thanks take for care. listening. Thanks.